And go ahead and be seated. As you do, let's pray together. Lord, you are indeed our rock and our refuge. You are the God who is from everlasting and will be to everlasting. We thank you for who you are, for your glory, for your wisdom, for your power, for your kindness. Lord, thank you in particular that you, great God, have been kind to us, that you've shown your favor to us in Jesus, that you've imputed his righteousness to our account so that we can stand before you, so that we can worship before you, so that we can look forward to eternity with you. Thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that covers us and our sin. We thank you that we are counted righteous in him. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to understand your ways, to know your heart, to hear your word. But that's our agenda right now. We want to hear your word. We want to hear your voice. We have no other agenda. Lord, I seek not to impress. I seek not to grow in any kind of favor or fame with these, your people. I just want to be faithful to declare your word to them. And I pray you'd make them want to be faithful to hear, to listen, to embrace, to know, and to live out. So Lord, would you help us in this moment to bend all of our desires to your word. Help us to hear your word and to apply it to our lives. We need you. We are desperate people. We pray that you would help us to trust you. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word. We pray you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what a perfect day to gather as a church family to worship the everlasting God. We change, but God changes not. We grow old, but God is from everlasting. Our health fails, but God is the source of life. I love you, church family. What a privilege it is to be here with you, to worship with you, and to serve you by declaring God's word. You are beyond precious to me. Now let's get to work in Ecclesiastes. Who's excited about getting into the book of Ecclesiastes? Anybody? Well, thanks for being so patient last week. As I read the entire book out loud, that has to be on the list of most questionable leadership decisions I've ever made. But I still don't apologize for it. If you grab a pew Bible in the rack in front of you, Ecclesiastes 1 is on page 553. We're going to meditate on just 11 verses this morning, not the whole book, but just the first 11 verses. This is the prologue to the book of Ecclesiastes. As you find your place there, let me just remind you that Ecclesiastes is a notoriously difficult book to try and grasp and understand. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, This book is one of the most difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. Craig Bartholomew in his commentary said this, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you've understood the book, there's one waving about in the air. Ecclesiastes is a painfully honest and realistic book that is as relevant today as it was when it was written thousands of years ago. 
This is a book that is written to help us understand life in this fallen world where things are hard and nothing ever pans out the way we hope. No one ever gets the fairy tale ending. There's no such thing as happily ever after in this messed up, sin-stained world. More than any book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of life in this broken world. The drudgery of work, the emptiness of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tediousness of everyday life. Ecclesiastes helps us to be honest about the problems we face in this fallen world. And it doesn't give us the easy Sunday school answers. This is a book for people who struggle to make sense of life and the things that happen to us. This is a book that tells us more questions than answers. This is a book for those who ask questions and don't have it all figured out. But but at the same time, this is a book that screams to us about how much we need a Savior. This is a book that shows us the very fact that we are weary of this life, the very fact that we have all of these questions that seem to remain unanswered, shows us that we were made for something more than life under this sun. The reason nothing can satisfy us in this world is because only Jesus can satisfy. This world has been subjected to futility, And God has put eternity in our hearts, and therefore we should not expect to be satisfied by anything in this life. So let's read and meditate on this introduction, the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there, any, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after This is the word of the everlasting God. May God write its truth on our hearts. The title of this book is Ecclesiastes. The word Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of the word translated as preacher in verse 1 in the English Standard Version. Or if you have the NIV, it says teacher. 
The word means assembly. It means gathering. But used as a proper title, it means something like leader of the assembly, leader of the gathering. And so that's why our English translations use the word preacher or teacher. These are the words of the one leading the gathering. Verse 1 identifies who the preacher is. The preacher is identified as the son of David and the king in Jerusalem. Now because of that and because of the experiences described by the preacher in this book, many, uh, most scholars actually agree that Solomon, the son of David, is the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And I, I think that's correct. I have no reason to believe it was not Solomon. Well, the preacher wastes no time in getting to the business of shattering our illusions about life. Right here, starting in verse 2, he begins to ask an important question. He asks the question, what do you expect out of life? What do you expect from this life? What are your expectations as you face day in and day out and year in and year out? And he begins the book with at least five answers to that question. What do you expect from this life? All of which I want to show you here in the text. Here's what he says. He gives five answers to that question. He says, don't expect to find meaning. Don't expect to find gain. Don't expect to find advancement. Don't expect to find satisfaction. And don't expect to leave a lasting legacy. So how's that for your happy, live your best life now sermon? If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome to Miller Heights Baptist Church. By the way, don't expect any meaning or purpose or gain or satisfaction from this life. Seriously, a, a surface reading of the book of Ecclesiastes could be called cynical or pessimistic. But I don't think that's the preacher's aim. Rather, this is clear-eyed and realistic. You see, knowing what not to expect out of life will rescue us from shallow, fruitless lives in this world. The goal of Ecclesiastes is to help us enjoy what is truly substantial in this life. But the author first has to tear down our grand illusions about life. Sometimes you have to tear something down before you can build something better. Now, before we look at these five ways the preacher demolishes our rose-colored glasses through which we view the world, let me try to summarize what I think is the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes with an illustration. Okay? After meditating on this book for the good part now of seven or eight months, this is the best illustration I've encountered for what this book is saying as a whole. Consider with me what happens to an ice cream cone on a hot Texas summer day. If you stand outside with an ice cream cone, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to melt very quickly, right? What if after taking a few licks of the ice cream cone, you decide that it is so good that you want to save it for later. Can you save an ice cream cone for later? Or what if you decide that this ice cream cone is so valuable that you want to grasp it in your hand to make sure no one takes it from you, to make sure it doesn't fall to the ground? What will happen? It will run right through your fingers and just leave a, 
a sticky mess if you try to hold on to it. Well, this life and the things of this life are like that ice cream cone. They melt away quickly. They don't last. If you try to save them, they're gone in an instant. If you try to grasp a hold of the pleasures of this life, they'll leave you completely unsatisfied. So that's the depressing message of Ecclesiastes that many people point to when they read this book, and they don't go beyond that. Life is like an ice cream cone on a hot Texas summer day. It's meaningless because it melts so quickly, and it provides zero nourishment. However, the preacher doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, life is meaningless, therefore stop living it. It's not worth living life. If you're standing with an ice cream cone on a hot summer Texas day, what is the only thing you can do with that ice cream cone? You can't save it. You can't grasp hold of it. The only thing you can do is enjoy it. Since it will be gone in a minute, savor it and find enjoyment in the flavor of the ice cream cone. After all, that's why you purchased it, is it not? That's what, that's what the ice cream cone exists for, to be enjoyed. In fact, what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to argue is that's why God gave you taste buds. That's why God enables you to enjoy it. He made it for your enjoyment. So don't try to grasp hold of it. Don't trust in it. It will melt quickly and so enjoy it. Life is fleeting. Life is temporary. Life is vain. And so what's the only thing we can do with life and the stuff of this life? Enjoy them. Since death is the end for us all. Since life doesn't last, enjoy it while you have it. After all, that's why God has given it. And I hope to show you from the text in the weeks to come how the preacher shows us that our upcoming and certain death is meant to teach us how to live well, how to truly enjoy what God has so graciously given. But first... He tears down. But first, he shows us the melted puddle of ice cream on the floor. What should we expect of this life and its pleasures? Well, first, don't expect to find meaning. What should we expect? Don't expect to find meaning. Verse 2 is a shocking declaration. He starts the book by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now the word translated vanity is one of the most important words in the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher uses this word a total of 38 times, which is an average of about once every five verses in this book. Notice he begins this book with the declaration Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then he bookends the book by ending it in chapter 12, verse 8, with the same declaration. All is vanity. Now the word that's translated vanity, it's difficult to fully grasp in English, using English words. Literally this word means something like a puff of breath, a vapor, Used figuratively like it is here, it refers to something that is fleeting, something insubstantial, something very empty. 
In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, the same word is used to refer to the worthless idols who cannot deliver on their promises. They are a mere breath, Jeremiah says. They're a vapor. They're nothing substantial. And therefore, he says, don't trust in these fleeting idols. They're like your breath on a cold day. Here one minute and gone the next. And that's what the preacher is saying about everything under the sun. It is passing and it is temporary. And therefore, it is insubstantial. It will not last. The sunrise may be beautiful, but it is vanity, fleeting, meaningless. You see, that beautiful sunrise is like our ice cream cone. You can't save it for later. You can't grasp hold of it. And the same goes for money and fame and sex and power and control and everything in this life. The preacher says it's the highest of vanities. Vanity of vanities means the highest vanity. All is vanity. Now, by all is vanity, the preacher means that this life and the stuff of this life was never meant to satisfy us. Looking for meaning in anything under the sun is like trying to buy a sheet of plywood at the pharmacy. That's not why the pharmacy exists. And you and I were never meant to find ultimate meaning in the stuff of this life. Nothing functions as we hope it will. That doesn't mean everything in life is bad. That doesn't mean everything is a waste. I think that the most common misconception of verse 2 is that, that a surface reading of it could cause us to throw our hands up and say that nothing in life actually matters. That's not what the preacher is saying. He's going to go on, in fact, in this book to describe some things that matter, that deeply matter. What he's saying is, you can't grasp a hold of anything in this life just like you can't grasp a hold of the fog. By saying that everything is vanity, the preacher is saying that everything in this life is kind of like a shelf that cannot hold much weight. If you try to put anything substantial on the shelf, it will collapse. The shelf is fine at holding light, insubstantial things, but it was not made to hold meaning and substance. It cannot bear the weight of our hope and happiness and fulfillment. The meaning that we crave, the meaning that all of us crave, is nothing, there's nothing in this life that can hold that meaning. Don't expect to find meaning and weight and substance in this life. God did not design the things of this life to give us meaning. They are a mere vapor, fleeting and this is a message that shatters our illusions about life and the stuff that our hearts crave. Friends, this is a message that no advertiser wants us to hear. All is vanity. Nothing is substantial. Everything is fleeting. Secondly, the preacher says don't expect to find gain. Don't expect to find meaning, but also don't expect to find gain. Notice the rhetorical question in verse 3. The preacher asked this again and again throughout this book. He asked, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
The word gain comes from the accounting world. Gain is what is left over after all has been accounted for. The preacher asked, when all is said and done with your life, what will be left over? What will be the gain after all your labor, after all your striving, after all the frustration, after all the chasing of the wind, what will be left over? And the implied answer to this jarring question is nothing. Nothing. There's no gain to be had in this life. The other phrase that we're introduced to in verse 3 is the phrase, under the sun. The preacher uses this phrase close to 40 times in this book. Now, it's hard to know exactly what he has in mind by this phrase, but I take it to mean everything in this life. That is, everything the sun shines on. He's assuming that there's more than just what's under the sun, but what's under the sun is the only thing we can see and know and touch. And I assume the Holy Spirit inspired this phrase to get us to see that there are things above the sun that will give us gain, that will satisfy us, that will provide meaning in life. Above the sun is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But Solomon is not there yet. He starts with the bleak outlook that there is no gain to the toil of this life under the sun. When you die, can you put your net worth in your casket with you? The Egyptian kings tried that, right? Their tombs are full of gold and riches and even wives because they couldn't imagine leaving all of their gain behind when they died. But those riches stayed behind as a testimony to all of us that you can't take it with you. Naked we came from our mother's womb and naked we shall return. No matter how much supposed gain one amasses in this life, there is no gain under the sun. Your awards and recognitions and houses and experiences and bonuses and achievements will do you no good on the day of your death. Don't expect to find gain in life under the sun. Now this is incredibly disheartening when you consider all the money and toys and possessions we accumulate in this life. If you make an average salary, you work 30 plus years, you will make over $2 million in your lifetime. $2 million. Some of us could have a garage sale every single year with the stuff we buy and then don't use anymore. But how much of that stuff can we put in the gain column of our lives? How much of that can we put in the gain column? The preacher says, zero. None of it. The stuff of this world is like a book without, a, without content. It's like a book with a title page with no content. It's like a team that practices but never plays a game. Don't expect to find gain in this life. Third, don't expect to find advancement. Don't expect to find advancement. Now we're going to come back to verse 4, but look at verses 5-7 through seven right now. The preacher uses the illustration of nature to show what we should expect from this life. There's a lot of activity in nature, right? The sun rises, it sets, the wind blows, the waters rush, the waters rush, but there's no progress. There's no actual advancement. The preacher looks out on nature and just observes the sun keeps going up and down, and it's at the same place that it always was. 
The wind blows to the south but comes back again from the north. The streams flow again and again in the exact same, exact same place. In other words, everything just ends up exactly where it started, even though it looks like it's making progress. It looks like it's moving, but in fact, it's staying in the same place. The starting point and ending point are the exact same, the preacher says. In fact, look how he makes this same point in verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it has said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, our modern ears perk up when we hear this and we want to object at this point. How can he say there's nothing new under the sun? He didn't know thousands of years ago that we would have computers in our pockets, that we would have solar panels on our roofs. But stop for a moment and consider the larger point that he's making. He isn't saying there are no new inventions. He's saying there's nothing invented that deals with our fundamental problem. There's nothing new that causes gain and meaning in this life. Like, do iPhones or electric vehicles alter the fundamental human condition? Like, does, has there ever been any invention that puts something in the gain column that death will not wipe out? See, our culture worships at the altar of progress. We progress and therefore we have meaning. We advance and so we think we've done something. We think we are so much further down the road than past generations. But really, we have the exact same struggles and discouragements and frustrations, don't we? Putting a space station in the sky has not kept our families together, has not delivered us from boredom, and has not eradicated a broken heart. Mankind is still the same as it has always been under the sun. No amount of new stuff can make something more than a mere mist. Don't expect advancement in this world. Don't expect progress don't expect the iPhone 14 will finally solve that aching in your heart. Don't expect that new fill-in-the-blank with something that will give you meaning. Don't expect a new house to finally get you ahead in this world. We are dealing with the same problems past generations have dealt with, and so don't assume new is better. There's no progress. No advancement, only a repetition of the same things our great-grandparents dealt with. Fourth, the preacher says don't expect to find satisfaction. Don't expect to find satisfaction or fulfillment. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness, he says. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Verse 7 uses the water cycle to show that there's no progress in the world. Like, no matter how many gallons flow down the river, the water table is not raised even a single inch. And that's an illustration for what happens inside of every human being. No matter how much flows into us, we never find satisfaction, he says. We're never full. We never experience that fulfillment that the world chases so strongly after. The preacher says, notice, all things are full of weariness. And we all say, amen. The stuff we chase after just wears us out. We are chasing a carrot on a stick. We never actually arrive. 
The preacher says, our eyes are never satisfied. Our ears are never filled. In other words, no matter how much you pursue, no matter how much you accomplish and store up for yourself, you're never content. Your heart and my heart are never satisfied with anything in this life. Listen, there's never going to be a point in your life where your eyes just say, that's enough Netflix and Hulu and Disney+. Plus." They're never just going to say, okay, you filled me to the full. No, there's always going to be the next show to watch and the next thing to see and the next thing to experience. You're never going to watch enough football games or listen to enough podcasts to be satisfied with this life. The great philosopher Jim Carrey once said, (laughs) he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see that that's not the answer. Think about that for a second. This is profound. Here's a guy who has everything he, we all would want, everything we could dream of, and he says all it's done is cause him to see that he's still not satisfied, that this stuff doesn't complete him. Just think about that. If you could have in one moment everything you ever dreamed of, all it would do is tell you that's still not enough. That we have these appetites proves that we could never find satisfaction in this world. C.S. Lewis once said that if we find in ourselves desires that this world cannot satisfy, it's proof that we were made for another world. This world was never meant to hold the weight of our satisfaction. Genesis 3 tells us that because of sin, God subjected this world to futility. And He did so as a judgment In other words, God intentionally, in response to our sin, made everything in this world vanity. Don't expect to find satisfaction in this world because all things are full of weariness. Well, fifth and finally, the preacher says, don't expect to leave a lasting legacy. Don't expect to leave a lasting legacy. Legacy, And so this truth bookends this passage in verse 4 and verse 11. In verse 4, the preacher reminds us that generations come and generations go. People are born and people die. And then in verse 11, he says there is no remembrance ever. Now, clearly the preacher understood that everyone leaves a legacy. And there are small select few who have legacies that last far beyond their lifetime. We've all seen monuments and statues honoring people who have died. But the preacher isn't concerned with undermining his point with the exceptions. He's referring to what is generally true for every person. You and I will die and be forgotten. You and I will die and be forgotten. Someone will replace us and no one will remember us. Think about it. How many of you know your great-grandparents' names and can say anything substantial about them? Maybe a few of you can. But most of us can't. And it wasn't even that long ago that they died. This is a sobering thought that the preacher is making. Think about it. No one will even remember your name a hundred years from now. Next time you go to a funeral or you read an obituary, consider how short they are. 
A person lives 90 years and their funeral many times lasts 25 minutes total and half of that is music. They live 80 years, love their family, serve their church, go on many adventures and all that marks the occasion is a two-paragraph obituary. Think about your life and the people you know and the things you've done and consider that one day your life will be boiled down to a few sentences that highlight maybe your family, where you worked, and just a few of the things that you enjoyed in life. I don't know about you, but that's kind of sad when I think about it. That is sad. I start to wonder what is even worth doing at all in this life. And that's the exact place that the preacher wants us to be. That's exactly the thought he wants us to have. He wants us to feel the reality that we will not be remembered. The world will be just fine without us. And when we are gone, there will be no lasting legacy for our lives. See, our lives and the activity of our lives is the equivalent of building a sandcastle on the beach. It doesn't matter how big you build it, and it doesn't matter how long it took you to build it, the tide will come in and erase everything you have built. Welcome to reality. Welcome to life under the sun. There will be no lasting legacy. So what should we expect from this life? Well, here's what you should not expect. You should not expect meaning or gain or advancement, or satisfaction, or a lasting legacy. I told you that this book is downright painful when we take it seriously. This is downright painful. This book has to hurt us before it can heal us. Let me close with three application thoughts for today. First, the wise person will deeply accept the brokenness of this life. The wise person will deeply accept the brokenness, the vanity, the insubstantialness of this life. You see, the wise response to these truths that we're hearing today is not to kick against them. It's not to say, nah, I'm going to make sure I leave a legacy. Nah, I'm going to make sure I find gain. No, the wise person just embraces that this is reality. Let, let these truths simmer and soak and sting a little bit. James 4, remember, says that life is but a vapor. It is short and it is insubstantial. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. And when you accept that, friends, you are ready to let these truths impact who you are and the way you live the rest of your life. The wise person just sits in these truths and accepts them as reality. Secondly, Second application, the wise person will respond to these truths with humility. The wise person will respond to these truths with humility. These truths are here. They're here in God's Word to produce humility in all of us who trust God. This is God's Word. And the desire for it is to create this humility in us that would make a difference in this world. That's why in chapter 5, we're going to encounter this command that the preacher gives to let our words be few. That command is a command of humility, right? Let your words be few means you don't know it all. 
So be quiet in God's presence. Listen to Him. And the wise person cultivates that humility. Third, third and finally, the wise person will look to Jesus as the answer to these deep questions. The wise person will look to Jesus Christ as the answer to these deep questions. Listen, Jesus is the answer to the questions of the uncertainty and fleetingness of this life. Jesus is the answer to the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes asks. Don't put your hope in finding meaning or gain or satisfaction or advancement in the things of this life, but rather trust in the Savior who came from beyond the sun to give us ultimate meaning and purpose and gain for eternity. See, Jesus came from beyond the sun to rescue us from this vain life under the sun. And one day, King Jesus will return and He will make all things new. Jesus will heal what is broken. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We're going to sing in just a minute, All I Have is Christ. Oh, what a response to the truth of the book of Ecclesiastes. All I have is Jesus. I hope you can say that today. Let's pray together. Oh God, help us to feel the sting of these truths from Your Word. Help them to sting us so deeply that we respond with humility and acceptance of these realities. God, I pray in the spirit of Ecclesiastes that these truths would cause deep joy in our lives, in the here and now, in the moments You've given us. To realize what really matters and what does not matter. Oh God, help us to set our eyes on things above. Help us to patiently wait in the midst of this brokenness for the coming of our King, for the second coming that will right all wrongs, that will bring meaning and purpose to all eternity. Oh God, we long for that day. Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. All we have is Christ. All we have is Jesus. Let's stand and sing this together, church family.